Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. I'm glad that we've got this image of the split subject in mind here. I think it's pretty useful if we can generously and tentatively work with having the minus V and this um, OJA in each of those cavities in the split subject. I think that's helpful for now, um, even if we decide to switch it up later and decide that it doesn't make sense. Because let's face it, that's what it means to think like a Lacanian. Part of the reason why Lacan is challenging is because he was always updating, revising, changing his thinking in response to patience and interactions and thought. This is not somebody who figured it all out and then wrote the book and then moved on to the next topic. He worked these topics over and over again. And so the Lacan talking about OBJA in Seminar 10 is a little different from the Lacan talking about it in Seminar 11. We read where we are. And right now we are in Seminar 11, chapters five through eight. Now, one step back in order to take two steps forward, you'll recall last time we were talking about repression. And we had this model that we were messing with and it looked something like this. As I draw this, I imagine some bells are gonna start ringing here. All right, here's how we talked about repression last time. You're traveling along, all's going well, bam, car accident, trauma, some shit goes down. What winds up happening is you repress some part. Hold on just one second.
just one technical issue. I want to make sure we got this figured out in a way that works. All right, good. Thanks for your patience here. Yeah, so the image we have here is one where you're traveling along in time, this blue line, there's some sort of an opening. And it's important to note how we've got this figured. There is an opening, a cut that opens this up. There is an open spot, and then there is a conclusion or a closure. These are three elements that Lacan is talking about in the first few chapters of seminar 11. There's the cut that opens, the resulting moment of interpretation, and then a closure of sorts, where you get right back on track doing whatever it is you're doing. Now, in that moment where the trauma occurs, something gets repressed. Not the whole event, but some representative of the event, a signifier of that event gets repressed. It can be the feel of the fabric on your skin during that car accident. It can be the smell of the leather in the car that you crashed in. Some signifier of that traumatic event gets repressed. And it goes down into this field of the unconscious and basically mixes it up with all sorts of other signifiers. Your X's are next to your Y's or next to your Z's and they're all down there having a good old time. Until you find yourself 20 years later, ready to buy your first car and the car salesperson says, and how about in leather? And they open the door in that hot Georgia sun and out comes that same smell of hot new leather. And what do you do? I'll tell you what you don't You You don't buy the car. You vomit all over the car, down the window, all over the salesperson, whatever the case may be. Fictitious example. In that moment, some element of your present is linked up through a circuit of representatives to this earlier trauma. And I said last time that at that moment, you have two options. You could pretend like, oh my gosh, I must've eaten something strange before I came here. Oh, must've been that tuna sandwich I ate and just get right back on with your life. Back on the time line. The other option though, is to see this as an opportunity to really dig deep and ask yourself, what part of my past drove me to that highly unusual projectile vomiting at the car lot? Notice the arrow of time moves diachronically. It unfolds in a linear fashion, but the arrow of meaning, the top green arrow is a retro arrow. It's a backwards looking arrow. And for those of you that have been in seminars with me on historical methods, critical historical inquiry, you know that this is something I'm super interested in. It's part of the reason why I'm really interested in Lacan. He and Freud are a couple of a handful of thinkers who are really good at thinking through retroaction. Second only, I would say, to the work of German philosopher Walter Benjamin. The reason why it's interesting here is that the diachronic arrow of time gives way to a synchronic 
loop-de wormhole connecting retro logic where something in your present is now hooking back into your past. And if you use that as an opportunity to try and make sense of your life, and if you do so with the help of that great shaman known as a psychoanalyst, you might just transform your past into your history, resubjectifying it and coming to terms with, if you will, that original trauma. Now, the reason why this matters to us is that in chapter five, Lacan gives us a word for that trauma, Tuke, from Aristotle. In this chapter on Tuke and Automaton, Tuke is the trauma, the primal scene that you see here, an encounter with the real, which is always a missed encounter because it's repressed. Trauma is always a missed encounter with the real, Lacan says, because it is repressed. No sooner than it happens do you forget it. It is unassimilable, Lacan says on page 55. The trauma is unable to be metabolized, which is partly why it suffers repression. And it always seems to occur by chance. But here's the thing. What we are seeing in the bridge between trauma in one's past and the symptomatic expression of that repressed relation to the trauma in one's present is a return of the repressed. Here we see repression. And here we see the return of the repressed. What Lacan's going to say is that repression and the return of the repressed are flip sides of the same coin, like two sides of a sheet of paper. You cannot peel them apart. In fact, it's only at the level of the return out here that we ever gain access to what happened back there in the moment of repression. In other words, in order to make sense of trauma and the resulting repression, we have to make this wormhole, this time travel from a present in which the repressed has returned and a past in which it was initially formed. But until you have this return of the repressed, we know nothing of that trauma at the level of the unconscious and how it's operating. Here we get our first theory of repetition. Lacan approaches the topic of repetition by looking at repression and the return of the repressed. And in fact, if you ask him, where does the repressed return from? He says, it's simple. The repressed always returns from the future. From a future moment, a moment that is future relative to the moment in which the trauma occurred. The present in which you have a symptomatic response to the smell of leather at the used car lot is a future relative to the trauma 
that conditions that present puking moment. Does that make sense? And if you just jump on the timeline and don't take that opportunity to wonder why the hell you just vomited all over this poor soul, guess what? In the future, there will be another return of the repressed. It will keep returning and the cycle will keep repeating until the next time you have a traumatic moment. This is how you get something like this slightly problematic notion of the re of rep repetition compulsion. A simple way to understand this is that it's just a series of mistakes that you have yet to transform into lessons. The mistake that recurs is one that hasn't been realized as a lesson. These are all indications of what Lacan is about to do with repetition. I want to pause there for a couple of questions because it's atop this basic logic that we're now about to build something a little more complicated. Are you good with this so far? All right, I'm seeing some thumbs up. I'm going to take it. We're going to go ahead and do away with this just in order to have a little more room on the board here. <clears throat> the fun begins for us about on page 60, I would say. In this chapter on Tuke and Automaton. Now, I don't wanna to dip too far into it yet. What I'd like to do instead is some more drawing. And then we'll come back and look at some key passages and illustrations. So what we've said earlier tonight is that there's this split subject. We've talked about a couple different ways of understanding this split subject. Here's one of them. I want to add two elements. The first harkens back to that traumatic experience that set off repression. Tuke, trauma, these are encounters with the real. And for Lacan, the real is where it's at. The real is a field in which repression or in which representation does not occur. It marks, in fact, a lack of representation. Now, I risk just writing rep because it could mean anything. Here we're talking about representation. This is a radically other reality in which words and images fail. This is the field of what he describes as the tuke from Aristotle. It's an apparent accidental encounter with, with something that blows your mind, leaves you speechless, causes you to gasp, recoil perhaps even. This is trauma. Encounters with the real are shocking. They are traumatic. 
and they result in a split subjectivity. The no of the father that enacts a primal separation or self-mutilation, the production of no things, is what happens when the real approaches us. It breaks us up. Here's our split subject. What you see represented at the field of the split subject is a representation of the lack of representation that's occurring in the real. And I wanna be very careful about how we put this. It's a representation of the lack of representation. that we see happening in the real. Lacan has a German term for this that he borrows from Freud. This is the, the Vorstellung. The term in question here, if you haven't already seen it, whether it was traumatic to you or not, is at the top of page 60, <coughs> fourth line down, <coughs> the Vorstellungs, Representants. What I'm doing right now is I'm isolating the Vorstellung part, which in German means representation. Erstelling is like presentation. Vorstellung means representation. This is outlined pretty well on page 60, but pages 69 and 83 are also very relevant here. So in this split subject, up here, we've got this primal separation, as Lacan calls it. That results in a kind of self-mutilation because what else is castration here symbolized by the minus phi, but a kind of mutilation of oneself. And how else did you feel when you shat your first shit in the toilet and cried when your parent flushed it, but mutilated, dismembered? This is the no thing process. Down here, of course, we have the privileged object, feces, that results from that primal separation. Feces that gets put down the bottomless hole of objea, here figured as the toilet. Good page to wrap our heads around this is 103. Now this is a pretty horrendous place to be. If the real approaches and constantly shatters us, calling attention to our split subjectivity time and time again, the dream becomes a pretty alluring opportunity. The dream works well to encompass and enfold the split subject and with it, the experience of the real.
in something more closely aligned with fantasy. What we see happening here is this. The real is a field of the lack of representation. There are no words or images that can render this thing for you. You cannot represent the real. The split subject is a site at which this lack of representation, the lack of representation is represented. Now, how could that be? If the real is a site of nothing, the split subject is the site of a zero that signifies that nothing. This little a as zero, the experience of lack that emerges when you have the minus phi, the incisional cut of the one, the unary trait that results in the opening of a black hole that is the cause of desire known as obja. When you have these two elements together, the experience of lack is well represented by the number zero. Zero is a representation of something that itself exists in a world without representation, nothing. Zero is a signifier of something that exists beyond the field of signification. or at least that wanders errantly through the field of signification, the same way that the count does. Zero is a way of representing that void. The dream is what takes the place of the representation of the lack of representation and envelops it and I'm gonna write it out here so that we have it right in front of us. The dream, and I like this, takes the place, takes it. Of the representation or the representative, if you will, of the lack of representation known as the real. The dream envelops these previous two moments. What you have here is not the Vorstellung, but the latter part of that German term that Lacan cues up. So you see how these terms connect. Together in this moment, you have a Vorstellungsrepräsentanz. Now, Lacan wants to take this a step further, which is gonna be beyond us, and say that the reality into which you awake from the dream is also itself a kind of fantasy in which this process is reproduced. We don't need to go that far in order to understand the logic of what's happening here. And that logic is the one we were just talking about at the level of repression. This is 
a logic of repetition. The split subject repeats at some level, namely at the level of signification, what's happening in the real. And the dream repeats that previous moment at the level of a fantastical envelope. These three elements capture a lot of what Lacan is doing with repetition so far in seminar 11. There's an encounter with the real that is traumatic, that yields a split subject with all of its self-mutilated body parts, off-limit no things, lacks and omissions and desires, all of the things that characterize this split subject as we've discussed it. And it's at the level of a dream that this splitting, this spaltum is displaced, has its place taken from it. Now, let's work on some examples. I don't want you to think I'm just making this shit up. And I want, it to, I want you to see how Lacan is working this out. Because with these three very simple categories, you can make sense of the two primary examples that he's working with here in this section of seminar 11. The example of the Fort Da game on pages 62 to 63, and the example of the dream that the father has where the child approaches him in chapter seven of Freud's interpretation of dreams and says, father, don't you see I'm burning? Each of these three categories has a representative in these examples. <clears throat> now at the risk of making a crazy move, I'm gonna once more clear our screen. Rest assured that everything you're seeing here is gonna be saved and sent to you tomorrow via email, along with the recording of this lecture. So don't worry if you miss something or you wonder what the hell that signifier is that I just put up on the board is because my penmanship is so bad. Don't worry, you'll be able to figure it out as you need to. We've got these three categories. I'm gonna go ahead and write them up here just to keep our logics clear. Here's the real, there's our split subject. Here's the dream. All right, let's start with the example of Fort Da. You wanna understand what Lacan's doing with repetition? By God, let's figure it out. Page 62. The first full paragraph that begins when Freud grasps. That's where the action begins. Who would like to read starting at the top of 62? Please just go ahead and turn your mic on and start reading. 
Uh, I'll go. Uh, when Freud grasped the repetition involved in the game played by his grandson and the reiterated Fort Da, he may indeed point out that child makes up for the effect of his mother's disappearance by making himself the agent of it. But this phenomenon is of secondary importance. Okay, Hold on. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna jump in and like try and like offer commentary as we go. Thank you for reading, it's super, super helpful. So just hold on a second because some of us might not know what the hell this Fort Da game is about. So let's just really quickly understand what this is and what Freud says it means before Lacan jumps in and tells us that what Freud's insight here is of secondary importance as we just heard. So here's what happens briefly. It's in Beyond the Pleasure Principle. You can track it down and read the story yourself. Freud's daughter shows up and drops her grandson off at the grandparents' house. And then she dips. And according to Freud, she does this a little more often than he would like. He's kind of like down on her about this shit. And he notices something. The child does not get upset when his mom leaves. Now, in those days, you had cribs that had these like bumpers all the way around. It was like a blanket that would be draped over and all the way around the crib. And you kept the kid warm that way. But you know what? Kids, they also suffocated and shit. And so they removed those things. And now you see the logic of the crib looks very much like a prison cell. There are no more of these blankets draped over the walls of the crib. In Freud's day, though, there were. And one of the things he notices his grandson doing when his mom leaves is he's got this little cotton reel, like a little spool that used to have yarn around it. And the little kid has tied a string to it. Or maybe that's part of the game. It already came like that. Maybe the grandfather or the grandmother did it. Most kids would walk along and pull the string and the spool behind them and play at it being a wagon, perhaps, or an animal that they're walking. And the little spool would kind of roll with them. Not so in the case of Ernst. Instead, Freud's grandson takes the string in one hand and the spool in the other and throws the spool out of his crib so that it goes across the wall down on the other side of the blanket and can no longer be seen. And the child at that point lets out a kind of cooing noise that Freud interprets as the German fort, which means away. Now, the spool is gone like the mom and can no longer be seen like the mom. Unlike the mom, though, who comes and goes on her own volition beyond the child's control, Freud says, ah, grandson, though, has the string in his other hand. And he pulls the string until the spool emerges from the top of the crib, pops back in, at which point, the child grabs the spool, brings it close, and an expression that Freud experiences as kind of delight or jubilation says, da, which in German means there, but also here. This is what Heidegger's playing with in part with Dasein. Dasein is always here and there. The German da in this case means here. What Freud says is, Look at this. The reason why the kid is not upset at his mom's comings and goings is because the child has mastered at the level of a game what he can't control in real life. Earlier, Lacan is going to say, aha, and isn't this 
an initiation of the symbolic because the cotton reel, the spool, represents the mob. It's a signifier. The child signifies or repeats, represents the mom at the level of a game in order to manage his traumatic relationship to her repeated absence. This is Freud's insight. And as we just heard, thank you, dear reader, this phenomenon, Freud's insight, is of secondary importance. You know it takes a lot when Lacan shows up and says that Freud's primary insight into some phenomenon is of secondary importance. All right, now we're all on the same page. You know what this game is about. You know Freud's interpretation. Let's hear what Lacan wants to add to it. Dear reader, please continue with this character, Wallen. Wallen stresses that the child does not immediately watch the door through which the mother has disappeared, thus indicating that he expects to see her return through it, but that his vigilance was around or was roused earlier at the very point she left him, at the point she moved away from him. The ever open gap introduced by the absence indicate, indicated remains the cause of a centrifugal tracing in which that fall, in that which falls is not the other K face in which the subject is projected, but that the cotton reel linked to itself by the thread that it holds in which is expressed that which of itself detaches itself in this trial, self-mutilation, on the basis of which the order of significance will be put in perspective. For the game of the cotton reel is the subjective's answer to what the mother's absence has created on the frontier of his domain, the edge of his cradle, namely a ditch around which one can play, can only play at jumping. The real is not the mother reduced to a little ball by some magical game worthy of the hiverse. Sorry. Uh, it is a small part of the subject that detaches itself from him while still remaining his, still retained. This is the place to say, in imitation of Aristotle, that man thinks with his object. Okay, let's pause is, right there. That's great. That uh, first round of applause, because those are some clunky ass sentences that you just worked your way through for all of us. Thank you. I see why I asked you to read it. Cause I'm like, nah, I can't read that shit. That's, that's insane, but it's here. What Lacan is saying is that the secondary importance of Freud's interpretation is trumped by something more important about that cotton reel. The cotton reel is actually a figure of the subjects, the grandson's self-mutilation. It is a figure of the grandson's split subjectivity. It is not simply a representation of her. If you wanna to be touchy about it, it's that part of her that is still a part of him that he cuts off and casts out across the gap, the opening, the cut, the split, the stroke, the rupture, the rift introduced into his life by her leaving. You see, the real here 
as you can see on the blackboard, is mother's actual departure. Not the fact that she is gone. Note the shift here in this paragraph. But her departure as a verb, it is at the very point she leaves him, at the point where she moved away from him, and in so doing, opened up a ditch. So think about it. Just imagine this. The mother comes in, has the baby in her arms, puts the baby in the crib, turns around, and walks out the door. In moving away from the child, she opens up a gap, a ditch, a chasm between them. The cotton reel is the part of the subject as hook that he is throwing out across that ditch, the ditch that is his own spall tongue, his own splitting. This is how Lacan is reading it. There's an, now an ever open gap created by her. The cotton reel linked to itself by the thread that it holds. So Lacan's point here is that the cotton reel is not necessarily and not exclusively, not even primarily the mom. It is attached to a string attached to the body of the subject. It is in fact a part of the subject more than it is a representative of her. That's why I put cotton reel here under split subjectivity. Now let's read again slowly what we heard and see if we can piece this together. The subject is projecting, but that cotton reel linked to itself by the thread that it holds in which is expressed that which of itself detaches itself in this trial. Self-mutilation on the basis of which the order of significance will be put into perspective. The cotton reel is a part of the child's material existence that has been cut off and thrown away, out of sight, over the wall of the crib into the bottomless black hole of invisibility. That motherfucker just got thrown into oblivion. And it was precisely a part of the motherfucker that threw it. That's Lacan's point. For the game of the cotton reel is the subject's answer to what the mother's absence has created on the frontier of his domain, the edge of his cradle, namely a ditch around which one can only play at jumping. If you've seen a ditch, do you know what it looks like? It looks kind of like this. It's a line. Ditches can go around buildings, but it fundamentally has the shape of a stroke, a split, a divot, a furrow. And if you've read Lacan, you know that these are all ways that he represents that un, that one of the unary trait. That first no of the father. That number one, this is the ditch he is alluding to here. The ditch opened up by mother's departure is in effect, my friends, pay attention, the minus fee of castration. If the child is repeating anything, 
representing anything with that real. It is a representative of their own castration. Cast into the bottomless ditch of desire. This is what Lacan is messing with here. Notice again, next paragraph, Lacan's going to hit it hard, just like we did too. This real is not the mother reduced to a little ball by some magic game. It is a small part of the subject that detaches itself from him while still remaining his. Emphasis on small part. It is detached from him, but still his, because he has a string tied to it. Detaches itself from him while still remaining his, is still retained. This is the place to say in imitation of Aristotle that man thinks with his object. Do you know what the object in question here is? It is at root objea. That is what this child is casting about with. And this small part is going to ultimately become the privileged part object of the child's drive. But wait, we're not there yet. Don't ask questions about the drive yet. We're not there yet, but it's still everywhere here. Reading on, because I want to show you that I'm not just making this shit up. It is with his object that the child leaps the frontiers of his domain, transformed into a well and begins the incantation. If it is true that the signifier is the first mark of the subject, how can we fail to recognize here from the very fact that this game is accompanied by one of the first oppositions to appear, that it is in the object to which the opposition is applied in act, the real, the cotton reel in this case, that we must designate the subject. That's why it's here underneath the split subject. To this object, we will later give the name it bears in the Lacanian algebra, the petite a, objet a. The activity as a whole symbolizes repetition. Don't forget, that's why we're talking about this. But not at all that of some need that might demand the return of the mother. The kid ain't concerned about getting mommy back. And which would be expressed quite simply in a cry. Here's the part to focus on. It is the repetition of the mother's departure as cause of a spalton, which in German means splitting in the subject, overcome by the alternating game Fort Da, which is here or there, right? Da, here or there, and whose aim in its alteration is simply that of being the fort of a Da, the away of a here, and the Da of a fort, the here of a there. This is where the dream comes in. The fort Da game is effectively a dream 
a fantasy that the child enacts in a way that allows him not to overcome the mom's departure, but to overcome the split subjectivity that her departure introduces into his fucking life. The game subsumes the pain of castration and lack, envelops it in the fantasy of in a way that can be brought to here and a here that can be cast away, starting the game over again in a cycle that is, wait for it, repetitive. The Fort Da game is a repetitive game. The kid doesn't just throw the spool over the side once, but instead does it multiple times. It is aimed at what essentially is not there, qua represented, for it is the game itself that is the representance of the Vorstellung. What will become the Vorstellung when, once again, this representance of the mother and her outline made up of the brushstrokes and gouges of desire will be lacking? Example one the repetitive cycle from the real, represented by the mother's actual departure, to the split subject, represented here by the cotton reel, to the dream, here represented at the level of the game that the child plays. The dream encompasses the split subject that represents the trauma of the mother's actual departure. You all feel good enough about this to try one more example? You got the flow of it enough to know, I think. Let's do it. We got 20 minutes left. I wanna leave time for questions. So let's look at this dream on page 69 to 70. In this tour de force all of a sudden, in the eye and the gaze. I think 69 to 70 gives us some good glimpses of this dream. Now, let me again summarize this for you because some of you haven't read Freud and that's totally fine. In fact, you don't need to because we've got it right here. If you want to, it's only about two paragraphs. It's the opening paragraph of chap paragraphs of chapter seven of the interpretation of dreams. And it's Freud recounting a dream that somebody told him that they once heard in a talk where somebody nailed the meaning of that dream that they in turn heard from the dreamer. So this is like some hearsay ass dream that Lacan is coming to through Freud. But the dream unfolds something like this. And I figure why even try and do it if we're not just gonna do it directly. A father had been watching beside his child's sickbed for days and nights on end. After the child had died, he went into the next room to lie down. 
but left the door open so that he could see from his bedroom into the room in which his child's body was laid out, with tall candles standing round it. An old man had been engaged to keep watch over it and sat beside the body murmuring prayers. After a few hours sleep, the father had a dream that his child was standing beside his bed, caught him by the arm and whispered to him reproachfully, Father, don't you see I'm burning? He woke up, noticed a bright glare of light from the next room, hurried into it and found that the old watchman had dropped off to sleep and that the wrappings and one of the arms of his beloved child's dead body had been burned by a lighted candle that had fallen on them. That's the dream. That's the dream that we see popping up here on pages 69 to 70. You can see the famous passage at the top of page 69, fifth line down. Father, can't you see I'm burning? Let's run it through our system. The same way that we did, but with a different color to mark a different situation. What you have here at the level of the real is an actual fire. Freud says he can't you know, testify to whether this dream was real or what the story was, but assuming it was, there was an actual dead body in an actual other room and an actual candle that fell on an actual wrapping and caught that shit on fire. A dead child alit in the other room. If that's not Tuke, if that's not an encounter with the real, I don't know what is. Now comes the interesting part. In the field of the split subject, this second element in our repetitive sequence, this is where the child's utterance, Father, don't you see I'm burning? This is where that split subject pops up. Now, what Lacan doesn't mention here is what Freud adds to this interpretation. What Freud comes along and says is, first, I wouldn't add much more. This seems like a pretty reasonable, straightforward dream, except to say that the words in the child's language, father, can't you see I'm burning, are almost certainly, according to Freud, repetitions of past experiences that the parent and the child had together. The child died of a fever. And so Freud is like, oh, well, of course. There were probably numerous occasions when the child told the father, daddy, I'm burning up. And can't you see I'm burning? Freud just says that that expression is probably connected to a highly emotional situation or maybe situations where the child said something similar to the dad in a way that really troubled the dad. 
that stuck with the dad at the height of some sort of an emotionally intensified experience. I would suggest that these elements are also the small parts, the privileged parts that would go on to become parts of a drive. These are small elements of reality, part object and part cause that would become part of a drive. And it is no coincidence that Lacan is presenting it here in this reading because the drive in question here is the scopic drive. Father, can't you see that I'm burning? This is the important part about pages 69 to 70. You can read these until you're blue in the face, but until you reach the end of section one on page 70, it's unclear what Lacan is up to. Last line on page 70 before the beginning of section two. The solicitation of the gaze. Father, can't you see? Dot, dot, dot. That's why it pops up here. Because here, the small part of reality, the partial object, the cause of desire in this moment, the lack that renders the subject split, is represented not by what the father does with his eyes, but by how the gaze approaches him and says, what the fuck is wrong with your eyes? Can't you see where I am? What's happening to me? The dilemma here is that the gaze has shown up, walks into the dream, and says, what's wrong with your eye? Why can't you see? But of course, this is the dilemma of the eye and the gaze. The eye is the position from which you see, or in this case, don't. And the gaze are all of the perspectival points in your world from which you can be looked at, even and especially when you're not seen. The dream here, it's just that. It's another dream. It's a dream in which, according to Freud, the father's wish for the child to still be alive is fulfilled. If the father doesn't wake up while his child is burning in the other room, it's because in the reality of the dream, the child is no longer dead the child is alive again. And who would want to wake to a traumatic reality in which your child is not just dead, but fucking alit in the other room? However reproachful the child is to the father in the dream, at least the kid is still alive. At least they're still together. At least they're still talking. Who would want to wake from a dream like that? I think this is one of Freud's best insights into that dream. Lacan isn't going to go for it entirely. But if the dream is a wish fulfillment, and some dreams very clearly are, here it is simply a father's wish for his child not to be dead. 
This is another example of this repetitive circuit from the real to the split subject to the dream or to a dream logic of sorts. Page 83 will be the last one I call your attention to tonight. Unless of course, we wanna dip directly into the gaze. Page 83 in the middle gives us a nice summary of the process that I've been describing for you. It is here that I propose that the interest the subject takes in his own split, here's that split subject, is bound up with that which determines it, namely a privileged object which emerges from some primal separation, from some self-mutilation induced by the very approach of the real, whose name in our algebra is Objea. This is a great summary. If you pay attention to how this paragraph unfolds, there is a sequence of events happening here. The subject who attends to their split will trace it back to a privileged object that determines that split, a privileged object that has emerged from some primal separation, here represented by the minus V. A self-mutilation induced by something else, the approach of the real, whose name in our algebra is Objea. It is no coincidence that Lacan orders this structure backwards. He starts with the split subject, then goes to Objea, then goes to minus V, then goes to the real. He is telling the story retrospectively, retroactively. You start with your split. You go back and consider the lack that defines you as split. What is this experience of lack? Which in turn, if you push it, traces you back to an original no, a primordial no, a unary trait, the no of the father, which was itself induced by an encounter with the real. Page 83 is great because it's written in the appropriate Lacanian logical time of retrospection. But if you read it carefully, you can see the very sequence that I'm working with here, which raises the question of the dream. It is here that I propose that the interest the subject takes in his own split, it's that interest that Lacan would have us curry in ourselves and each other. The dream is for those who aren't interested in exploring their splits. The dream is always there, whether it's in reality or at night. The dream, whether you are awake or asleep, is always there for those who are unwilling 
unable, uninterested in their own split. If you look at the table in front of you that we've been working up here on the blackboard, there's a reason why the density, the conceptual density of this three-part table is all to the left. And why there are just a few words underneath the dream. Lacan would have us focus on the first two, each of which is enveloped behind, beneath, subsumed in the dream. But the goal is not to dwell on the dream. The goal is to note the point in the dream where the split subject sounds off. Father, don't you see I'm burning? That's the important part of the dream because it's there that the object cause of the father's desire, here represented in the scopic field as the son's gaze, shows where this father really is emotionally, why he's there emotionally, and what's happening in the real to allow all of this to occur for him. There is literally an actual fire in which his dead child is alight. The answer to the question, Father, don't you see I'm burning? Is no, I don't. Page 75, seven lines up from the bottom. Our position in the dream is profoundly that of someone who does not see. Father, don't you see I'm burning? No. I don't. Our position in the dream is that of someone who does not see. And this is the thing about the gaze. It doesn't belong to you. It's always looking back at you, even when it's not actively seeing you. It paints something in and on us, turns us into a screen, a stain, a spot. The dilemma of the gaze in the eye is simple. I see only from one point, but in my existence, I am looked at from all sides. The eye is the point from which you see. The gaze are all the sides from which you are looked at. The drive, when we get there, is going to manifest itself in the gap between the eye that doesn't see and the gaze that is always looking back, whether it sees or not. The drive, when it comes to the scopic field, 
always pops up in the split, in the differential relationship between the eye and the gaze. Now I wanna close in the spirit of examples here. The stain, let's think grotesquely with this. In our lectures on seminar 10, this came up often. It's worth noting here as well. I think you've already heard it from me before. You're flossing in front of a mirror and a piece of food pops out of your teeth and sticks to the mirror. That's the stain. It's the gaze also. It's a part object from your body, a corporal morsel, if you will, that pops out of your mouth, sticks to the mirror, and looks back at you. Of course, it doesn't see you, but it's still looking back at you. And it calls into question the entire specular image of yourself before that mirror. As soon as you're looking at yourself in the mirror, you might be, you know, checking out your body, all that shit. You pop that food out and suddenly the entire illusion of whether you're checking out your ass or your abs or whatever the fuck you're doing, it's called into question. The skull at the bottom of the painting, the ambassadors, is a stain on that painting that calls the entire scene into question. The piece of food that pops out from your teeth and sticks to the mirror, that's the stain that is equivalent to the gaze at this point in Lacan's work. A lot of you are interested in the gaze, so I wanna make sure it's on our horizon. If not for the end of our session tonight, the beginning of ours in two weeks. The stain represented by the piece of food, represented by the skull and the ambassadors, these are all figures of split subjectivity. A subject annihilated, Tiffy, an embodiment of the minus fee of castration. It's an image of our own castration, or as Lacan puts it, these are images of our own nothingness. Don't forget, it's a skull, man. This is death's head that appears at the bottom of the ambassadors. This is not just any kind of phallic signifier. This is a signifier of mortality, of death. How else are we to read the soft watches of Dali's work? that Lacan refers to. Are these not flaccid penises? How about the small can at sea? Why is it a small can? And how does that relate to the small part you see under the split subject? And then crucially for us is the question of love. In the visual field, the problem with love, Lacan tells us at the end of our readings for tonight, is that the gap between the eye and the gaze, if the scopic field is where you find your love, this gap between the eye and the gaze is going to make that very difficult for you. Why? Lacan puts it well on page 103. You never look at me, there's the gaze, from the position from which I see you, there's the eye. The reason why love, according to Lacan here, is fraught when it is based simply on looks, simply on appearances, is that there is always a slippage 
between the eye that sees the beloved and the gaze from which the beloved looks back, whether they see you or not. Visual love is a trap for the very reason that Lacan is pointing out here. The discrepancy between the eye and the gaze means that if your love is strictly based on physical appearances, well, let's just put it this way. You're never going to see eye to eye with them. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the God. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. <laughs>